Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. Right now, I am sitting outside in the street in the town of Panchero, just outside of Belgrade. If you're wondering what the music is in the background, that's coming from a nearby cafe. I haven't suddenly got a good taste in music. I was in Belgrade and it surrounds for about a week, and that's not long. However, it's long enough for the seasons to change. On the way into Belgrade, I was in a vest. It was burning hot. I was sweating in my shorts when I was going around Belgrade. And now, and now there's more than a chill in the air. I've got my jacket on, my gloves on, and my legs are quite cold. Autumn has definitely arrived and summer has finally gone. I absolutely loved spending time in Belgrade. For me, it is one of the most exciting and diverse cities that I've been in, at least in architectural terms. From brutalist buildings to faux baroque, from masses of concrete to cobbles. It was a city for me full of surprises. Every corner seemed to offer something different and even after a week there I felt like I could just stumble upon any area and find out something a totally different side to the city. It has a really exciting nightlife, bars and clubs floating on the Danube lots of cafes that really uh, helped me indulge my addiction to coffee. It was a city that I was quite sad to leave. However, I wasn't just in Belgrade this past week and I wasn't by myself. I was joined by Pippa and we will hear more from her later. One of the highlights was heading down to Kosovo and visiting the World Child Cancer Project in the capital, Pristina. But beyond that, we also had an adventure down in the south. We rented a car, drove down, and went through this valley to one of the ski resorts, Brezovica. Now, on the way, we passed through some pretty poor villages, but we took a turn off to the left, and then suddenly we were surrounded by sumptuous chalets made out of stone and beautiful wood. And it was just a huge, huge contrast to what we'd been passing through before to find this enclave of wealth, which we heard from another person was sort of second homes for the elite of Kosovo. We decided to go walking up onto the ski slopes and uh, it started dry, then it started raining. Then it got a bit colder and it started hailing, but still we climbed determined to get to the ridgeline at the top, which is also the border with Macedonia, North Macedonia. As we climbed, it turned into snow and we got rather cold and then we got attacked by these blistering needles of ice that were just being flung into our face. We were covering our heads with our hoods and yet it was incredibly painful. It was like having sandpaper just rubbed into your body at high speed. So we got to the ridgeline and lost height quite quickly after that. 
Later that day, we carried on through the valley and we drove to Prizden, which was the capital of Serbia back in the 14th century. Now, in total contrast to the snow that we'd been experiencing as we drove towards it, there was this golden, gorgeous sun that was lighting up the rocks at the top of the valley, and we were at the bottom of it and down at the bottom of the gorge. And as we turned the bend, we just saw minaret after minaret and these golden domes picked out by the sun. It was the most unexpected sight for us. We had no idea what to expect in prison. And there were beautiful mosques, a cobbled street and a stream running through the center. And as the sun set, the sky just turned a brilliant blood red. It was a very special place. And we met a very special person, a chap called Erdis, and we will be hearing from him in the later episode of facing up so keep your ears peeled for that although there hasn't been that much cycling on the tandem this week it has still been a huge pleasure to have pippa along for part of the ride and before we finish this week let's hear from her so pippa you've joined for the last week here in in belgrade in serbia but we've done a lot more we haven't done much cycling on the tandem but a lot of <laughs> other stuff has happened what are going to be the highlights for you looking back? Um, I think there have been a lot of highlights. I think we've both been pretty surprised by Belgrade as a city. It's beautiful and it's incredibly vibrant and great nightlife, great food. But I'd say probably the highlight was a little slipping into Kosovo and again slipping into North Macedonia, running over those snow-capped peaks in a snowstorm was pretty awesome and I think that'll definitely stay with me for a while. Wasn't expecting to any, see any snow in October. And was there a more challenging point in the week for you, apart from having to put up with me? <laughs> um, I think the height of challenge was probably last night, jumping in the Danube, I think when we saw the state of the water <laughs> um, and floating bits of plastic before we plunged in. Yeah, that was probably bit of a challenge yeah it definitely there was some trepidation at least on my side there <laughs> it's a lot of trepidation yeah but got through it <laughs> yeah got through it enjoyed it surprised a few um people on their evening walk i think on the way back yeah but and the fishermen fine. yeah they almost caught something else oh thank you so much Pippa, for it joining us past week absolute pleasure i've loved it and now it is time for this week's conversation hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. This week, I have Penn Haddo with me, who is something of an explorer extraordinaire. He is the first and still only person to trek from Canada to the North Pole solo, unsupported, and he did this in 2003, 64 days on the ice, covering almost 500 miles. Penn has had a long history in the Arctic, starting doing his first expedition in 1989, leading treks and also co-organizing the first all-woman trek in 1997 to the North Pole. He's done a lot more than simply exploring. Research and understanding the melting of the Arctic sea ice led him to Brayton lead the Catlin Arctic Survey. He's also the director of 90 North, which is an NGO which is advocating for the creation of a conservation area for the Arctic Ocean and pushing this very much through the United Nations. In 2017, he took two 50-foot yachts through the northern polar international waters. These are not ice-breaking yachts. This was not possible 
10, 20 years ago, and to make the emphatic point, the Arctic is opening up for trade for, for mining for tourism. Penn, there are plenty of challenges before us. I'm really excited to get discussing them with you. Thank you so much for joining on the Facing Up podcast. I'm looking forward to this. Excellent. So I'm going to start in a very obvious place, but I think it is an interesting one. You did this incredible solo trek from Ward Hunt Island in Canada to the North Pole, 478 miles. In 64 days, you are facing temperatures of minus 45 degrees Celsius. And at the beginning, you were lugging a sled that weighed 125 kilos. So Ranulph Fiennes called it one of the last great endurance challenges on earth. This is no mean feat. As an outsider listening to this, I could imagine all sorts of challenges. But what for you was the greatest challenge in that? Well, I think fairly predictably, most people's understanding is that it would be a physical challenge. I mean, to pull that weight through that distance uh, over that period of time in those cold conditions and over difficult terrain, well, terrain in inverted commas, it's an ice scape, there's no land, you're on an ocean. You're literally on ice the whole time. Literally. So you, well, I was setting off from one of the northernmost beaches in the world on the Canadian coast and was walking out to sea. And the North like Geographic Pole is sort of mid-ocean. It's about mm-hmm. you know, nearly 500 miles offshore. Uh, and the only way you can do that is, of course, by uh, walking across the, the ice flows, which are this sort of frozen crust on the top of the ocean. And there are sections between the ice flows where there's open water. So sometimes the ice flows pull apart and then you're going to have to get over that or around it somehow. And sometimes they crush together, these ice flows, to form these chaotic jumbles of ice where the edges of the ice flows are just crumpled upwards and downwards. They're known as pressure ridges. And yeah, there are about four and a half thousand of those pressure ridges between the beach and the pole. This does sound um, incredibly physical. How do you well, get across these open waters? I mean, How do you... These mini yeah. mountains of ice. It sounds yeah. like a little volcano, sort of ice volcano. Um, well, that's right. That, that's kind of what it is. It involves every hour of travel, probably taking your skis off up to five times an hour. It's a bit like going across a field, the ice flow, and then hitting the hedge or the, the stone wall, if you like, at the far side. And then you have to climb up over that, haul this sledge up over, lower the sledge down the other side, get down into the next field and off you go. And sometimes the fields are just like 10 metres across, so tiny fields. That's all that's left of what was once a huge ice flow, up to 10 kilometres in diameter. And others are, are enormous fields, you know, 20, 30, 40 hectares, acres in size. Yes, I mean, it absolutely is a physical challenge. Mm. But crudely speaking, most people, if they can comply to a training programme, which actually is a psychological issue, mm. uh, but if you did, they could become fit enough and strong enough and have the stamina, endurance to do it. Mm-hmm. That's not really the deciding factor as to whether you're going to get there or not, because lots of people could do that if they really wanted to, if they want to get to the pole enough. But mm-hmm. that's not enough. And the deciding factor, it seemed to me, is one's mindset, shall we call it, and the, the, the psychological outlook and resources that you have. Mm-hmm. Probably when I first, I mean, you say I did this thing and I did, of course, in 2003, but I conceived of the idea in, in 1989. So it took 15 years to pull it off. And there were two attempts, one in 94, one in 1998. So this is not just a, I thought I'd do it, so I did it. Mm. This was a huge undertaking. So I say it is probably since I've done it, I've continued to feel that the psychological, mental aspects, the percentage of importance just gets more and more. So I think it's probably 15, 20% physical, 
because that's relatively easy to deal with before and during, you know, in preparation and then mm-hmm. setting up and doing it. And maybe, you know, 80, 85% is what goes on in your head. And you're talking, you said the importance of the mindset, importance of outlook. What are those key factors? What are those traits that dictate or appear to dictate success? And are you born with them or can you develop them? I'm not a, a neuroscientist, but over the years, I've read more and more widely about this. I have a sort of broad personal perspective, I'm going to say, on this, which is that nearly everything that we are in terms of how we go about things and why we go about things and what things we go about are not in our genes. They're not passed through in the DNA. They are learnt behaviours from the environment and people and situations around us. Probably from pre-birth, actually, while you're still in the womb, there'll be some influences making their way into you there. And probably the first sort of two years are like super critical and the next three years to five years old and so on. And it sort of fades as quite rapidly, I think. That said, because it is all learnt, it can be unpicked and, if you like, the wiring you can rewire yourself. Mm. And that is kind of what I did because I realized that this challenge required of me some things that I was not sufficiently well set up for if I was going to succeed. Mm. And it is very hard we are who we are. We, you know, we see the world through instinctive, intuitive, unaware way until someone pulls one up and says, do you know what? <laughs> a couple of things you ought to know. But to do it yourself, it's very hard to get that third party objective perspective on stuff. Mm. I reached out to a sports psychologist mm-hmm. and I said, there are five situations that I absolutely know I am going to come across on this journey. Mm because I've made two attempts already, but much more relevantly, I set up a guide service in 1995 and had been guiding before that. So I've sort of been guiding for over 10 years, deliberately to build up this body of experience. It's a technical environment. You know, it's like Mm. climbing a high-altitude mountain. You don't just turn up and do it. Mm. Uh, You might get away with it. A positive mental attitude is essential. But if you put too heavy a dependence, reliance on that, you don't deserve to necessarily get there. With that attitude needs to be competence Mm. in skills and an experience. The skills and the experience lead to expertise, if you like. Mm. And you can't read that in books or go to lectures or talk to other explorers and get their advice. And you can't even do it, as I discovered, having a couple of stabs at it. Interesting. I mean, how many people do you know who really understand the ways of the Arctic Ocean and its sea ice? Am I speaking to one now? Can I say one? Fair point. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll say uh, one then. <laughs> very good. You're a funny guy, Luke. Or a clever guy. There's no one. Mm. There's no one. And in fact, there almost literally was no one in the world who had done anything other than make one or two expeditions to the North Pole. Successful if they were in a team or not, if they were solo. And so I just thought, right, I will set up this guy service and I will learn on the job. And just every year, nearly every year, I was up there for up to three months. Mm just observing, thinking, Mm. trying things out. And that was key to being able to, as I would say, maximize the possibility of success. I could never guarantee it. Mm. And as I failed in 94 and again in 98, I was sort of stripping back more and more other stuff in my life, letting it go and focusing more and more of my resources, both personally within and around, to sacrificing more and more relationships and normal lifestyle benefits, if you like, to just get this thing done. 
So you built um, a lot of competence and you build a lot of experience and that was getting you closer. That was maximizing your chances at success. And yet it sounds like that still wasn't enough. And you went to the sports psychologist. You said there were these five scenarios. Well, what was the mindset behind you that was going to get you through them? The first thing was to realize that there were some specific scenarios that had a deeply negative impact on my thinking. And it wasn't so much that they were going to lead to my death or injury, but that they would compromise or end the expedition. So that was a really important thing to have done. To be at peace with that, that if it happened, that would just be the end of it, or well, to actually be able to change your mindset so it wouldn't change the expedition, wouldn't end the expedition. Yeah, so I mean, mindset, I wouldn't want to define what mindset is, but to my way of thinking, it is the modus operandi of how you approach stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's some hard wiring in there, as discussed, and that can be completely rerouted, or you can um, change the capacity of individual wires. So some are going to be made bigger wires, and others are going to be made smaller wires, and la 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 la. To give you a specific example, I knew from experience that in the first 30 days, and particularly the first, let's say, 15 days, the sledge is at its heaviest because you haven't had time to eat too much of the food. You, you eat about a kilo of dried rations a day and about a third of a litre of fuel. Yeah. The sledge reduces in weight by about 1.3 kilograms per day. So it's fully loaded at the start. It's also when the weather is at its coldest. Mm. So you're going just as the sun has come up for the first time that year. The pilots have to have direct sunlight coming up, peeping up over the horizon to be able to see the sea ice well enough, or the beach in my case, to be able to land their twin otter aircraft. But Ski. any later, the ice is going to start breaking up, right? So yeah, so in fact, the weather continues to get it. There's a lag effect. It's just like in the afternoons between three and four. That's the warmest time of the day, even though the sun has been going down since noon. Hmm. But up there, although we're way past midwinter, actually, it's still getting colder. So just as the sun's coming up, the sea ice is still thickening in depth, as it happened. I'd like to go up earlier, but the aircraft can't get you there. So you're going in in sort of very early spring, late winter. So the temperatures were for the first 35 days on that season to minus 28 and minus 46 degrees centigrade, you know, all day, all night. <laughs> now the sledge, the frictional grab on the runners underneath the sledge is much greater at colder temperatures. Same weighted sledge on minus five snow and it would pull relatively easily. At right. minus 40, it's really grabby. It just doesn't want to slide. So you've got the heaviest sledge in the highest frictional conditions. And most of these pressure ridges that we were talking about earlier, because the ice is coming towards the uh, Canadian coast, it literally crumples up like a piece of paper. As it hits the Canadian coast, it just starts to crumple up. Right. Um, but those crumples sort of ease off at the further away you go. So now you've got to pull this very heavy sledge in cold conditions up and over, up and over, up and over for those first sort of 30 days. And I knew one of the scenarios was if I came up over a, a ridge, mm. you can see between one and three kilometers ahead, depending on how high the ridge is. And the average height is two meters high, okay? So they're not mountains in that sense. Mm -hmm. But when you think that there are four and a half thousand of them, mm. and if the average is two meters, that's 9,000 meters. Well, Everest is only 8,848 meters, and that's above sea level, starting quite high at base camp. So you're basically pulling this sledge up mm. and lowering it down, a height greater than Everest. No mean feat. Yeah, that's the physical part, but yeah. it's also deeply the psychological part. Because but you're making so little progress, presumably. 
it's desperate. So mm. I had a plan based on my experience, which was, and you had to really believe in this plan because it breaks you otherwise. And that's what breaks most expeditions. I would argue going for the Canadian side. The Canadian route is a bit harder than the Russian side because there you don't have all the pressure ridges. And the nearer you get to the pole going from Canada, the faster the ice is coming towards you. So you're on a conveyor belt, like a travelator at an airport. Every time you stop, you're going backwards. So the nearer you get to the pole, the less sleep you can have, and the more you just got to keep going because you won't recover the distance you've lost if you go to sleep for eight hours or whatever. Yeah. That's all part of the fun. So you come up over the ridge. All I could see was rubble, this chaotic ice. There were no fields, no ice flow, just rubble, rubble, rubble. Mm -hmm. That's what I For like two, three kilometers. That you knew would slow you down to you might only cover like a kilometer in eight sledging sessions nine sledging sessions a day's travel right well if you've got too many of those the chance of you reaching the pole because you had a fixed amount of food in, and fuel in your sledge yeah you weren't going to get there it mm. wasn't your fault nature had just laid out a track that wasn't going to work for you and you have no idea whether there are any more or how many more there are ahead of you. Mm. So unlike Everest, where you can plot almost every footstep, you know where all the tricky bits are mm. to the nth degree. On this project, you know that there's going to be ice flows, flat bits and mm. ridges and areas of open water and a few other bits and pieces. And the weather could be terrible or great or mm. blizzards or no visibility or la 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 la. What's going to happen? So it mm. messes with your mind. And anything that doesn't go according to plan, it's like you can very easily say something or someone is against you. Mm -hmm. This isn't the year to do it. No one could do it. There's really no point in me being here. So it's an unusual route. Yes, it's straight line to the pole in theory, but it's really, really not mm. um, that simple. So come up with a ridge. I'm going to get to this tooling. I said to the sports psychologist, if I see that and you're relatively hypoglycemic as well, so you're slightly shaky having pulled up over this ridge because mm. your blood sugar's all over the place, you can just go into a major sort of downer and there's no one there to say, oh, come on, you know, we'll get through this somehow together or let's have a cup of tea and a laugh or do you remember how you did this or that or the other? There's nothing. So there are no stabilizers like on a little child's bicycle. There are no stabilizers. Mm. And when you fall, you go right over. And there's no one to pick you up. There's no one to pick you just up. Just you. Yeah. And do you know what you do? Because the cold is so severe to save weight. I had no down jacket. Right? I had no outer jacket with me. I had the clothes that I stood in and some spares if I fell in the water. And that was it. This oppressive cold, it's like you go from I think I can do this one minute to this is ridiculous. This is just absolutely ridiculous. There's no way no one could do this. And I'm in a world of pain. I'm calling up the plane. I'm out of here another year. And it's not sort of, I can't cope, you know, in a sort of fey way. It's like, I really cannot cope with all these pressures, environmental and mental, going on. And that's what most people did. Everyone had done, actually, to that point. It can be dressed up in all sorts of ways. Oh, it was the weather. Oh, it was the ice. Or, oh, I had a sore leg. But the truth is, for the majority of the time, they just couldn't hack it, including myself twice. She said, right, let's think about it. We need to come up with a, a tool that you can sort of reach into your rucksack pull out for every time this happens and she said it's really important that you need to own the tool it needs to be your tool mm. so you work it out so i said right and we talked for a bit and i got this idea into my head some people your older listeners will remember the hamlet cigar advertisements where there was a chap listening to very sort of mellow music smoking a sort of hamlet cigar and he was in a music studio so i thought to myself imagine a wild rock band you know real heavy metal band going for it, giving their recording, okay? And I am, as the sound engineer, I'm sitting on the other side with all the knobs and dials, feet up on the desk, with my headphones on. Smoking it's, a Hamlet cigar. Well, I don't smoke, I never have, I would not recommend it, but yeah, the idea was, the band thought that I was listening to them, bless them. 
I wasn't. I was listening to some nice music and my headphones. I wasn't to them at all. And in that moment, this little micro video, sort of two, three second image sort of sequence going on, I would say to myself, I have control. I can either listen to the loud music that I hate, all that horrible ice out there that will slow me down possibly and, and prevent me getting to the pole, or I can deal with what I can deal with. I will switch to, no, I'm going to put into my head and take the approach that, that I need. Don't let the environment determine how you're going to react when it's not working for you. If it's a lovely day, enjoy the environment. Yeah, 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 great, I love this environment, okay? But if it's not working for you, know that you can switch, you can take control. And then the next step would be, it's not a punishment that I'm here. No one sent me here, because I've done something wrong and it's designed to be uncomfortable and full of privations and suffering and so on. Mm -hmm. It's a privilege. I have worked exceptionally hard in every possible way to even be able to have set off on this mission to raise the money and all sorts of people have been kind in helping with technology and diet and my wife who'd supported me and there's a lot of people who had to win their support in lots of different ways people and organizations and i'm about to do something that no one's ever done and actually if you did it that would be the feeling of self-actualization or, or, or reward would be extreme so it's a privilege it's not a punishment and at that point i would say do you know what? It's more than that. This bad, in inverted commas, bit of ice ahead of me, this is where I can show people what I'm made of. This is what killed off everybody else, snuffed out their ambitions. This is what I need. I need stuff like this to show people in inverted commas what I'm made of. Mm. This is what the whole challenge is about. It's not about the easy stuff. It's about how you deal with the really hard stuff. So this is it. This is you, Pen. Be on fire for this. Don't go into a self-pitying retreat. This is it. And all that's sort of a very long way of explaining something that actually I got down into like a three, four, five second bit of thinking in my head. Thank you so much for sharing that and being so, I can really picture it in my head and it's your tool. And if I was to do it myself, it would be a different picture. But I love the sort of step-by-step -step progression of how you begin by reframing it with a totally different abstract mental image and then you kind of bring it back to actually i'm in the arctic and yeah there's some massive bits of ice ahead of me and then now that you're in this slightly different mental state if you're beginning started to say oh well this is actually a privilege then pen would have been like shut up this is definitely a punishment you know that like you've kind of blocked out that noise then you can acknowledge that the privilege of it and this is really making me think about back um in march when i had to stop the bristol to beijing cycle ride and it would have been so easy to be resentful and to say, well, this was my dream taken away from me. This is something I've been working so hard towards. I don't know if I'm going to get another opportunity to get out on the bike. And to me, that's the totally the wrong opportunity where you focus on all the negatives and all the things that you can't do and all mm. the things that are holding you back. In that situation, it wasn't nearly as extreme as being out on the Arctic, but it was like, well, how can I live in a way that's going to make me feel good at the end of the day and uh, make the most of the opportunities that I have. And if I'm moping about life, well, then I'm going to be the person who's unhappy. Whereas if you can reframe it and be happy in any situation, that is kind of like one of the greatest gifts that you can develop. Mm. Perhaps it's not a gift, it's a trait or a skill, I suppose. Yeah, I think and if not happiness, then at least a sense of ease and being, um, as people say these days, you know, being present and just in the moment and things are okay, so everything's in balance. This notion of balance, okay, well, a couple of things. First is, when you had to, external forces made you have to stop your cycling, there's obviously some uh, issues, that throws up lots of question mark questions, issues, challenges, to how you might react. Mm. And I just wanted to say that when I failed in 1994, I actually mm. covered 35 miles out of the 480 or so, 
in 35 days. And the truth of the matter is I covered about 32 miles in about five days and then was in my tent at the edge of a huge area of open water that I had no means of crossing for the remainder end of the day. So I wasn't even averaging a mile a day. It looked like I was averaging a mile a day, but I wasn't. Mm. I was going fine and then I had to stop. Mm. It was a failure and it was extremely painful. It was a private failure. I felt I'd let all my sponsors down, all the journalists that were following it, my family in particular, my wife who, who had you know, supported me um, in all sorts of ways to even make it possible for me to get to the start line. I let everybody down. I mean, I kind of had. And so personally and publicly, because it was in the papers, you know, ha, 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 British Exodus were a fails. I could only see it in terms of failure. And then, then it happened again in 1998. Now, mm. looking back, they weren't failures. And I thought, you know, they were temporary setbacks. Mm. And then I thought, no, they're not even temporary setbacks. Those moments were when I hit a boundary, a barrier that I could not find a way through. And actually, I could see it as a barrier or I could see it as a door that was shut, but there was a keyhole and I had to find the key to unlock this door. And I'd really like to make the point that people think it's all blood and guts and strength and attitude that gets you to things like like the North Pole and various other things. But I would say it's actually a test of intelligence in large part, both emotional intelligence and sort of more, I wouldn't call it academic, but sort of practical intelligence. You have to break down what actually was it. Yeah, seriously honest discussion in your head on a piece of paper and pencil. In fact, I used to do it while waiting for the aircraft, which might take two or three days. I'd be writing furiously all the notes. I'd given up, but I was already planning, while it was fresh in my mind, all the things, micro and, and, and macro things that mm. had gone wrong. Break the problem down or problems down into as small a parts as is necessary to be able to put them back together again in such a way that, right, that will get me past that barrier. So they were the essential opportunities, the essential experience I had to have to be able to get to the pole, especially if you've realised that just attitude and brawn are not enough. They're essential, but they're not enough. I suppose it's all about the framing because I guess the way that they had been set up, it made it very easy for them to feel like failures. But actually, when you recognize they were part of the step process of a very, very challenging thing. If you hadn't done those expeditions in the first place, you'd have never got to the door. So you would never actually have known what the key would be to get through that door. And so it is part of the process that gets you to that end result. But when you say, oh, I'm going to do this first time, that's when it can feel like a failure and means you focus on that bit rather than the look at everything I've learned. Look how I'm going to do it better next time. There's a little diagram. I don't know if I can explain it uh, well enough without doing a doodle. Normally I do a doodle. We'll get you to draw on later. No, no, don't do that. World's worst doodler. So there's this process. Imagine you're learning to drive a car. It's the easiest way of putting it. You start off being consciously incompetent. I know I can't drive. I don't know how to change the gears and time the pedals and all of this. And after a while, you become consciously competent. You're still having to think what you're doing, but you can do it. You know what to do. You know, and you keep driving a few more months, years, and you start to become unconsciously competent. I'm just, I didn't even know I changed the gear, you know, using the brakes. I'm just doing it now. It's Mm -hmm. intuitive. And then there can come a time if you are progressing in your skills, you're pushing, you're going forward a bit, doing a bit more advanced, where you become unconsciously incompetent. That's when you have an accident. Oh, what happened there? So you've now done a full cycle, and then that's the learning moment. You say, right, now I'm going to be consciously incompetent. 
I know I'm an idiot. I made a mistake. Right. We need to now work on that so that I can become consciously competent. And then you do enough of it, you'll become unconsciously competent. You see what I mean? Mm. It's a spiral. It goes up and up and up. Mm. There's a drop every now and again. You do the cycle and you get a nudge. No, you haven't quite got that right, mate. And then you go back. My life experience suggests that getting ahead, achieving, doing stuff, it's all about progression. You pro- almost certainly won't have the skills at the level and the experience that you need to deliver your, let's say, ambition at the start. And that's entirely normal. The key to realise is, including notions like becoming a leader, are you born a leader or not? You're not born a leader. I mean, you haven't got the genes. It's how you were probably brought up may give you a massive head start. But as discussed, you have control over your wiring once you know that you even have wiring and that you can change it and then you learn how to change it and then you have to decide well what do i want to change it to so there's like a five mm. sequence process once you get the hang of that life achieving stuff it's a process now and all ultimately you can often do is maximize the possibility of achieving your ambition that's the most powerful thing i can say to your listeners you can do nearly anything that you want to it may take way longer as it did for me, I mm. thought I was going to do it in 1994. No, I had to stick at it. You know, it's mm. a process and it won't necessarily go according to the plan or to the timeline that you want. Yes. I think this podcast is in a very different way, a case in point that when I started it back in March, I didn't know what to do and how to do it. And I realized that the only way I was going to find out was by starting off by making on my side, some pretty rubbish episodes, had great guests, but I didn't know what I was doing. And it's very interesting looking back on those because now I listen to them and I'm like, God, really? <laughs> it's, it's moved on since then, but it's very much, it's that process. And I think one of the things I would add to what you're saying is if there's a trajectory that you want to go on, and I'm not sure to what extent I believe in there being goals that you get to for the sake of them being a goal, because to me, it is the process. It is the progression on a certain path in itself rewarding and enjoyable. It's all very well saying, I want to cycle to Beijing. There's absolutely zero point in me cycling to Beijing if the process of getting there isn't one that I will find rewarding. And yeah. I think the same would be true with you with getting to the North Pole. Great newspaper headline, Pen Haddow gets to North Pole. But for you, was the process of getting there a rewarding one? That's a good question. I think the answer is yes, because otherwise I think I would have taken longer or would have struggled even more to have succeeded because a sense of micro rewards along the way is fuel to keep you going. So I think that's the answer. I was body and soul committed to achieving this thing. It's public knowledge in inverted commas in my book. One of the ways of fueling oneself and propelling oneself through the process and along the journey to the destination I have found intuitively to say, but now I see it was an actual thing that I was doing is to tell people. So you might start by telling somebody, do you know what? You tell your girlfriend or your mother or your parents, I'm thinking of cycling to Beijing. And you're sort of doing to see what reaction it is, maybe, but actually you've decided. And then you tell the postman because it comes up by chance, you, you know, la la la. And then you tell some friends and then you and, and you can get more on what you end up telling sponsors or potential sponsors, then the newspapers. And mm. actually, although in a sort of prosaic practical sense, you had to have all those conversations anyway, what it is also doing is tying you to the mast. Mm. Famously, Turner, the artist, went out to sea and when a storm came, he ordered himself to be lashed with rope to the mast. 
so that he couldn't cower down in the cabins. He would witness firsthand the majesty and the visuals and the emotions of enduring a storm. And I rather see it like that, that there are all sorts of things buffeting you. Your parents say, don't you dare do that. And your girlfriend says, well, that's the, that's the end of us if you're going to go off for, for nine months doing something like this. And you're, you know, there are all sorts of people who come with their own baggage their own perceptions, who are going to try and push and shove and stop. And of course, some that will say brilliant and encourage you, just as important. It is a way of, it's another it's a micro process of converting the dream or the vision into a reality. So now you've told some people, so it's becoming more real. And actually, you're holding yourself up to account. You watch, you know, am I going to do this? Are you going to be a flake ball and not, do, yeah. not actually follow through? That's kind of how it works. It all helps mm. to fuel you forwards. That was the, um, the word I was thinking else. in my head, was accountability. I was like, yeah. that's what we're talking about. But I yes. also wonder to what extent that is definitely true. And when we went public back in October 2019, I was like, this is for real. This is really happening. But I think on the other hand, in terms of what I think fuels myself and be really interested to know if you feel the same, is I feel this is something genuinely worthwhile. This for me is living richly and in a really full way. And I feel very, very lucky to have this opportunity. And in some ways, that is a big fuel in itself. And I'd like to think that even if I had told no one, I would be doing it for those reasons. And to me, those almost seem like the better reasons because accountability is tied up with a sort of sense of fear and like letting other people down rather than doing it. To, you know, it's a carrot and a stick, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's carrot and stick. And just in that concept, there's so much we could talk about. It's also the sort of person that you are. You know, there are all sorts of people in this world who say they're going to do stuff and don't. It's one of my buttons, if you like. When I was at I'll school... I'll press it later. No, no, please don't. When, when, <laughs> when, I was at, when I was at school, boys used to say, you know, before I leave school, I will do what was known as Long Ducker, which was a 26-mile run from Harrow on the Hill, which is about 400 foot bump in the sort of floodplain of the Thames crudely, all the way down to the Marble Arch in central London and back. Okay. And after two or three years of watching this, of hearing these stories about the senior boys saying, oh yeah, I could do it. They never did. And I thought, well, you're getting the credit for, yeah, I could do that if I wanted to, but you didn't actually do it. And I've always had a thing about it's a red rag to a bull. I just thought that was really poor. Now I see it as inauthentic behaviour, really. Probably out of people who were feeling a bit insecure and needed to big themselves up. So I did do it. Age 15, I did it. And it turned out, as it happens, that I was the first boy to have ever done it in the history of Harrow. 400 years of history. <laughs> so there's a lot of bullshit that's gone on for many years. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll do this run. Mm. The run was actually a myth. It had never even been done. I would like to share with you, I find a partner organisation called Favluba, which is a watch company. And it actually has made some technical innovations in the, in the watch industry that are unique. In fact, they're the second oldest watch company in Switzerland, but very few people are aware of this extraordinary brand. Never heard of They actually were the first watch company to put a barometer in a wristwatch that then converted to an altimeter and it could tell you highly accurately uh, up to 9,000 meters, which of course is just a bit higher than the 848 of Everest. So <laughs> there was no one on the surface of the planet that you would not know your altitude, which in navigational terms, for those that are interested in these things, is like a super critical bit of information. And you also could forecast the weather and so on. I'm telling you all this because when they sponsored Arctic Mission, which was when we took the two sailing vessels up into the uh, Central Arctic Ocean, mm -hmm. were the first vessels in history without icebreakers ever to enter this area, the sea area that surrounds the North Pole, basically. Their strapline was, and we had it on the boats, on the hulls of the boats, Fire of Luba conquering frontiers. 
And I was mortified that this was their strapline and embarrassed because I've spent my polar life encouraging people to move away from notions of conquering the North Pole and attacking the pole. There's a lot of macho, quasi-military language that goes on. We're going to attack the pole. We're going to knock it off. Also with cancer, I have to say. The fight, the battle, the struggle, the war. Yes. And then here we are. Haddo is sponsored by and working partnership with this amazing watch company, but they've got this retro line. And it really bugged me. And then I started to think, hang on a minute, because actually this is exactly what you and I are talking about. Frontiers barriers how do you conquer a frontier how do you move beyond Mm. the barrier the thing that you how do you get into new areas into the unknown the frontiers are not the pole the arctic ocean a mountain range a river they're all in our head and they really are whether you think you can do something or not you're probably right and so it's all about understanding that when you come to a point on your journey towards whatever it is and you're blocked Take responsibility for it if you can, because actually there's probably a way around or through it or under it or over it or vaporize it. And you just got to work out how mm. you set the limits. And I don't mean, can you eat an elephant in half in, in one minute standard sort of, well, you can't do everything. Not everything mm. is possible. Mm. Of course it's not. This idea of taking responsibility. If you take responsibility for it, it means that you can then learn from it. And I think that's, and to see that as a positive, I suppose, in that, yes, I've screwed up, but then now that I acknowledge I did something which I could do differently, that's a way to improve myself. And I think one of these themes that's really gone through this conversation, which I find incredibly exciting, is the ability to change who you are and the direction that you want to go in. And I you know, want to share a sort of story from when I was growing up, because probably a lot of people think I've always been like super active, super sporty, mentally, perhaps quite resilient. And I remember we, as a family, family holiday, we cycled down the Rhone Valley uh, when I was 11 and I hated it. And I found it so, so difficult. And I remember the first night, you know, so we're cycling along and we we're trying to get up to this campsite and you know maybe it was like 20 miles that day and i just threw in the towel i absolutely had a hissy fit 11 year old me was like this is too much fatigue this is too much pain i'm tired you know my parents had a really difficult child to deal with and i was pretty difficult in other ways of not enjoying school refusing to go to school the daredevil that i was And the reason I share this is because you really can change levels of resilience and, you know, what you think you're capable of achieving. And it takes time and it's a long process, but it's very, very much doable. But you have to start somewhere and it doesn't really matter where you start. It's where you want to get to. I think that is it's incredibly liberating that I went to the school gym back when I was 16 and I was the weediest kid there. If I'm put off by the fact that I have no muscles, I'm never going to get anywhere. But if I just say, well, this is where I am and this is how I'm going to improve. Well, actually, it doesn't matter if I'm weedy. I can put on some muscle and I'll be a bit stronger (laughs) after that. It didn't do very much, but it was the right attitude to take. Yeah, there's something you can do about it. Well, I was wondering, you know, we've talked a lot about this polar expedition and we talked about the process of getting to the North Pole, but we haven't talked about why. What drove you to this challenge and trying to conquer it if i'm trying to be provocative it is the question that inevitably gets asked there are so many answers 
different ways that I could approach the question, all of which would be valid in my view. And I should also say that if you'd asked me this question before my first attempt, after my second attempt, and now, I see differently and perhaps more clearly as I get more distance between it, a more objective perspective, if you like, that the cocktail of influences that were driving me forward to this extreme destination at the North Pole have changed. So I can give you an answer now, and I wouldn't necessarily want to stand by it as being the definitive one mm-hmm. in 20 years' time. That all said, one of the reasons is that my father, who was very talented, even gifted, in more than one sphere, really struggled throughout his adult life to make the most, to to really get on a ladder, shall we say, and go up it. And so sort of flatlined at a fairly sort of, in in career terms, he didn't have a career. So he went from subject to subject to subject to subject. My father, when I knew him, you know, in my lifetime, probably did 40 different jobs, radically different jobs, selling real estate in the Bahamas, making regimental candles, to making semi-precious stones, writing books and editing books, publishing books, selling dog food, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And it was massively frustrating for him and sort of uncomfortable to watch. He was a very clever man, very creative, very entertaining. Everyone loved having him at the dinner parties and, you know, and in the pub and so on. But in his head, he was very aware that he was unable to play a big game. And Possibly because of that, I suspect, in part, he diverted a lot of his original thinking to his parenting of myself and my brother. Way ahead of his time, for his generation, a modern father, as I would see it, and was like a coach. That's putting it a bit strongly, but every now and again, he'd see an op- a situation or a period of my life where he could really give me some context and some tools as to, this is actually what's going on for you at the moment and this is how you can uh, go about changing things so he was sort of setting me up to be able to deliver whatever it is i wanted to deliver in, in my life it was very subtle it always all, all good fun it was never so sort of heavy-handed at all you know i want you to be the leader of some large corporation i want this it's all about the salary and promotion you've got to be tough and all those. none of that all very soft skill stuff and for him which was a mistake, I concede, but partly for him, I wanted to show him that his work with me had made a difference and had been worthwhile and that he had achieved something through me mm-hmm. with his life. Mm-hmm. Without wanting to over-dramatise it, but that's how I felt and still feel. Mm. I also wanted to stick to a job. I did not want to find myself in that sort of endless chopping and changing that my mm-hmm. father had had. Once I got age 27, I, I basically had two jobs. I worked for a sports management company for four years, and then I started doing expeditionary stuff. Well, in 1989, I then switched age 27, I think, to doing polar, went on a polar, a polar expedition, and I loved it. Mm. And I could see how that opened up huge vistas for me in my mind's eyes to how I could really pour all I was and wanted to be into a field like adventure and exploration. And once I knew that's the area I was going to commit to, and it was pretty scary going all the way from 18 to 27, not Mm. knowing, but being Mm. determined to find something. I wasn't going to give in in case I just drifted. I wanted to find something. I needed to find something that would continue to propel me, if you like. Mm. And I felt that I'd found it with the polar stuff. And I wanted to then master my craft. I wanted my 
peers in the polar community who are very small in number. You know, they're even smaller when I started. About five people in the UK and about 30 in the world. You know, now slightly larger numbers. But I want to be able to know myself that I had mastered my craft crudely traveling on sea ice, mm. traveling on the Arctic Ocean, which is like, mm. really? Well, that's hardly it's not like a major career step. Um, and sounds pretty irrelevant. But but that was my world that I inhabited and I wanted to be the best at it. Mm. And the way to prove that I was the best at it, to know in my heart, was to do something that others were trying to do and were struggling to do. And if I could do it, have that, have that to my name, well, that's a sort of marker in the sand. There was a time when I was actually ahead of the game. So that was important to me, particularly, again, in the context of my father's life. I can also say, because people have said, well, what happens, Ben, if you'd failed, inverted mm. commas, mm. again? Going back well, to the concept of failure, yeah. what it really is. And the good news is that I don't have to answer that question. Because <laughs> <I was> thinking, <laughs> Cop out. <laughs> <laughs> did you see what I did there? But actually, because the cost to those around me was quite high, a lot of my peers were really roaring ahead in, in their careers with their incomes and their lifestyles, setting themselves up for a more secure future. And I had been pretty selfish and I had to be because I wasn't necessarily that good at this adventure stuff, but I had committed to doing it. So it's going to take longer than most people, but I still got there faster than anybody else, it's fair to say. But <laughs> there are plenty of people out in the world who could have done it quicker, but that's not what they're doing. I like to think that I would have stopped because I know what I haven't told you, uh, Luke, is that the biggest rope that lashed me most securely to that mass we were talking about earlier was uh, my father, he died of uh, brain cancer and he died in my arms. And the last words he heard from me as he died, I didn't know he was about to die seconds later, was if there's one thing I do with my life, I'll make it solo to the North Pole. And I hadn't planned to say, just those words just welled up in me. And it felt afterwards like I really have got to do this. I never doubted that I would, but now no, I've got to. That's a basically that's a vow. I cannot break that. And so I was very trapped in that. And I had no life plan until I'd done it. None. Wow. And it was, you know, it was kind of corrosive. Well, it certainly wasn't, it wasn't corrosive because it led to all sorts of inter really interesting life while trying to crack it. It was hugely limiting on other things for my family in terms of income, let's be frank, that really that was about it. And I like to think that I, if I'd failed in 2003, I'd said, you know what? I've absolutely done my best. You know, Dad, that you wouldn't want me risking my life and destroying now sort of putting my marriage at risk mm. and my children's health, mental health at risk. Mm. You wouldn't want that. So I took it to the absolute limit, if you like, yeah. I felt, and I achieved it. That sounds to me like in that moment for you, that was the ultimate accountability. If you'd said that yep. to your dad, then there was no way that you felt you could let him down. But the flip side to that is the bind that comes with it. That does, that can be very corrosive when you feel pressured into doing something rather than doing it almost of your own accord, though the two are, of course, massively interlinked. Yeah. We've already had a fascinating conversation and I, you know, we could definitely need to get you back for some more. There is, I guess, one question that I'll finish with right now. And that is, you're white, you are a male, you went to a public school, you went to Harrow, you are an explorer, you're British, and I'm very much all of those things really as well. 
do you feel that you are anachronistic now? You are from a former generation and we haven't really talked about the really exciting work that you're doing with 19 North and trying to preserve, create a conservation area in, in the polar north. What does the future look like for you? What do you hope that future explorers and uh, future people who are going to be protecting the planet after you're gone, what will that look like? I uh, believe that it has never been more important or urgent in human history that exploration be done and that explorers do their stuff. If you accept that the natural world from which we depend entirely for our own existence is showing signs of stress and strain in response to human activity globally. The solution to the problems that this is creating is first of all to understand everything there is to know about the sea ice and why it's going for as an example or a rainforest and so on and to understand everything that it brings not just why it's going but what service does sea ice provide to the global community? The service on earth is just a bit of ice. No, no, it technically provides an eco service and you can actually put a value per square mile on the cooling, the refrigeration effect that we benefit from before we just the whole Northern hemisphere and the rest of the world sort of overheats. It provides a, a refrigeration service and so on and so on. So the better we can understand the problems that we are creating, the better position we are to manage our relationship based on that understanding. And explorers' unique role in the hugely complex web of forces at work is to bridge the gap between the, the relatively technical scientific research players whose primary gift is research and to, by going to those environments and doing interesting projects that are interesting to a wider public audience can put a spotlight on a particular environment and its issues and through the story of what they're up to can weave in what's going on and why it's important and even what we need to do as a community to uh, as individuals and as organizations to help solve that problem so ultimately we're communicators but i would say we're not just storytellers were story makers and that's quite rare that's quite a gift if you can create the stories through your endeavors through your expeditions or and so on your projects it is stories that get penetration both through all the different types of media that we have these days from social media platforms to traditional broadcast and, and printed media it's always the stories and the better the story the further it will travel if it's got woven into its fabric key messages that's an important part it's not going to solve the problem, but we have a role, I believe, and it's never been more important. So I am who I am. I'm a times change. And for sure, I mean, when I started, there were hardly any women as a proportion of those doing adventures and exploration. There are hardly any women. Now there are a much higher proportion of women getting involved. And then McVitie's Penguin Polar Relay that I organised with Caroline Hampton, who was the leader in the field of that project, that kick-started actually a remarkably large number of, of women realising that it, it was okay to be a woman. In fact, women bring attributes that men can't. Mm. I feel that quite strongly. So I'm sure and I hope that the type of people who are explorers, their backgrounds will become broader. And there's an organisation uh, that's just been launched called Hashtag We Too, W-E-T-O, which I, I read in the paper, I think it was last week. And it is very much about encouraging people from 
minority backgrounds and from relatively impoverished backgrounds to realise that adventure is accessible to them if they choose to make it so. And that is the start. I believe that you, you start off doing trips and then you do adventures and adventures is all part of the process we were talking about earlier mm. of building your capacity, your personal capacity, like a yeah. personal development process. And if you ultimately choose to then use your though, that expertise to do exploration where you're shining a light on subjects that most people are not able to, then uh, that would be fantastic. And frankly, is, is, is important work. And that's We Too. We Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know much more about it. Uh, I literally just read about it in the papers. And, mm-hmm. it, and there are two people who are driving it, as far as I could see. Mm-hmm. But that was very much their ambition. I decided I have one more question um, yeah, for yeah. you. And there are many other things I'd love to talk about, you know, in terms of the, the personal cost and how you've been you know, framed before. Why did you do this? We know this is bonkers, but, but why? We, you know, there's a fascinating discussion to be had there and you know, what makes you tick now. So I would love to have you back on the Facing Up podcast and anyone listening to this who also has questions for Penn, please do get in touch because I'm sure he, he's yeah, already good. threatened to join me on the tandem. So then I'll have a captive audience. Uh, he won't be able to get away. The final question I want to ask is, we've talked about some, in in a way, some very inaccessible stuff, polar expeditions, challenges that we don't face on a day-to-day basis for most of us, you know, such as ice flows and whatnot. What have you taken away? Is there one thing, one particular thing that you've taken away from these experiences, which you've found has helped you live your day-to-day life back in the UK better and help you deal with those challenges more effectively? There are various answers. I mean, perhaps the one that you weren't expecting, I would say that I think it's that we are all as individuals different. And I believe that it is helpful to embrace, to understand what one's points of difference are from from other people and where they are positive to build on those and to amplify them, not in a silly way, but to have confidence in who you are and what you can do and bring to the table and how you can feel about life and to resist the herd mentality and the need to be like everybody else which of course we all feel in all our different cultures around the world but i think that that has become too overwhelming too pervasive and too strong a uh, thing we need to get some balance back into our differences and to embrace those and not just because we ought to as a community but because we need to we benefit by it and we will end up being healthier, happier people, you know, well, more fulfilled and, and comfortable, if not actually happier, um, because not trying to be something that we feel we ought to be, because everyone else sort of says that we ought to be, even though they don't really want to be either. But when I was about eight, I was at a fairground with my mother and probably my father and brother were there too, I suspect. It was at Newick, I can remember it quite on Newick's Green in East Sussex, and it was in a sort of early afternoon you know those um horses they go up and down on poles in a, mm-hmm. in a sort of merry-go-round thing and, and i don't think i necessarily been on it but i remember standing on those sort of metal steps that you have up, up onto it and looking out across everybody at this fairground and i remember saying to her words to the effect mum i said mum I, I just don't feel like everybody else i i don't really understand why people are like they are sometimes and i i just feel i'm different Okay. Now, for reasons I don't fully understand, but I suppose I kind of do now, I don't really know why, why I remembered that. But my mother said, well, you've just realised the most important thing there is to understand in life. 
essentially you are different and embrace go with it and that's not a bad thing don't be troubled by it and actually i think what i was expressing was although it was not confirmed to me until two years ago when i was like 56 years old that i have had adhd all my life well, i had no idea but as soon as this professional told me that it's like oh my goodness that explains so much of my life <laughs> and i had no idea what i was mm. wrestling with dealing with coping with my reaction was actually a frustration why hadn't somebody told me this when i was eight mm. not when i was like almost too late but the point is, without ADHD, I would obviously not have led the life that I've led. And it includes having done mm. things that, you know, we've been talking about, like polar work. So Thank embrace you. your differences. I think that is an incredibly valuable and powerful message to impart. And also the fact that you stressed that it's not about embracing your differences because you need to, because there's some outside force to be part of equality and these sorts of modern ideas. It's because you will be more fulfilled and you will be happier in your own skin. And the moment you start building this facade that, oh, I'm like you and I'm good at these things I'm supposed to be good at. Well, then you're constructing this thing about, well, who you're not rather than just saying, actually, you know what? Sometimes people really annoy me if I don't have my cup of tea or my quiet time in the morning. And that is just me. And so give me my space. A friend really sums us up. And I, I love this phrase of you do you, you do what works for you. And for me, that's something I tell myself often. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's Pen, it. it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. But before you go, there are three questions, as you know, that I ask every guest. So I can try and leech off them where to travel to, what to listen to, <laughs> and what I should be reading. I guess that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, this is my shortcut to personal development. I want to change who I am. So come your five years time, maybe I'll be able to participate yeah. in some polar expedition. Who knows? Yeah. So, Penn, what is your favorite or most significant place? Well, I have a few, but I suppose the answer is Pentar Cove, which is um, a small cove off the main bay of Polzeth on the north coast of Cornwall. And I've been there for many, many years since childhood and still go back there. And it's what I would call my happy place. At that particular cove, when you're in it, there are no changes to the landscape, the built environment. There isn't a built environment. And that's where if I'm really feeling under pressure or needing space or a bit of a boost and a bit of, you know, get in touch with my um, inner self and spirit and so on, that's where I like to go. <laughs> it's not an Everest or anything like that, I'm afraid. It doesn't it's need just to be. a quiet a pace of tranquility and beauty that has never changed and, and sort of is a direct line to my happy childhood. Mm. Thank you. What is your favourite or most significant piece of music? Well, we can either go <laughs> with uh, Brahms Piano Concerto number two in B flat major. Mm -hmm. A, because it's long. So you get your money's worth. <laughs> B, because there are some fantastic sections within it, including a sort of a, a piece of that's sort of like a waterfall cascading. I love all that. Uh, but I'm not a classical music person normally, but there's a personal story attached. It was like the first piece of classical music. I actually found it in a ditch when I used to work as a gardener as a very young lad. And it had been stolen, flung out of a car you know, the handbag had been, la, 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 la. all these bits and bobs were in these bushes. I cleared it out. It was brand new. And it sat in my car for about six years. And then one day I was driving up to some climbing in, in Scotland, 
going in to, towards Fort William, there was no radio signal, and I thought, oh, I'll put this thing in, in and I hammered it to death ever since. <laughs> and uh, if you want something a bit more funky, I would say it's loaded by uh, Primal Scream as being the most luscious, lascivious, groovy, sort of outrageous bomb dynamic music. Just a fantastic beat rhythm to it. Two ends of the spectrum. I, I love it. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. I'll be listening to both of those and uh, in different moods yeah, later. Your book, not your own, um, I should say, of course, as fine as it is. Yeah. Well, a book that I probably enjoyed reading most completely surprised me. I went off on an expedition and it was a gift wrapped up. I had no idea. what I knew it was a book. And when I opened it, I thought, you are having a laugh. You absolute shocker why would you do this it's like blast you and it was mm -hmm. called Fermat's Last Theorem by Simon Singh right yes. and it's about the history of mathematics mm. well at the best of times apart from I'm pretty good at percentages made and a few other things but basically I'm not a maths person you're taking the, the mickey out of me to give me this book and for the first page it was so gripping and actually it's about the solving of Fermat's theorem, which was an almost impossible mathematical challenge. And it was the whole history of mathematics was told, woven into the story of, I think his name was Andrew Wiles, a Cambridge mathematician, mm. who made it his life's mission to solve it. And the parallels with what he went through as to what I went through going to a physical North Pole, mm. his intellectual journey, I mean, you could just, yep, that did that, yep, same problem, same problem. It was extraordinary. Wow. So you got the whole conquering frontiers thing. It's all in here, really. All up in the head. Yeah. Wow. Penn, thank you so much. Um, some, re some choices I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into myself. Penn, thank you so, so much for sharing just a small part, not only of your life experiences, but the perspective and that thought process that you went through and are able to articulate so well. I really massively appreciate you sharing it with me. Thank you so much for joining me on the Facing Up podcast. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed it. And I hope that uh, you found it flagged up a few extra points of interest. It has indeed. Thank you so much, Penn. And that was my conversation with Penn Haddo. Thank you, Penn. And thank you for listening and joining our conversation. The image that I've kept on returning to in my own mind is the man smoking a cigarette without a care in the world with this glass sound shield and this rock band playing at full volume on the other side. And the power that that has, for Penn at least, to insulate him from the <laughs> very visceral elements that he found himself in in the Arctic. And I think that's something that I'm going to be taking forward this week as the weather has now turned and my toes are probably going to be a bit colder. So I'm going to remind myself that through all of this, I have a choice <laughs> either to be rather upset and taken down by this bad weather or to try at least and remain serene <laughs> as possible throughout it. Thank you so much for listening and really looking forward to sharing with you next week's podcast. But have a great week. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>